This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hi, good evening everyone. My name is Michelle Carey. I'm the Artistic Director of the Melbourne International Film Festival. Welcome tonight to this very special Sandy Powell Costume Design Masterclass presented by ACME and MIF. Um, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to Elders past and present. Um, of course, if you haven't already, please do go downstairs and check out the Scorsese exhibition. It is absolutely brilliant. And to get this show underway, I would like to um, welcome um, to the stage, even though she's sitting, standing right next to me, um, ACME's wonderful senior curator, Sarah Tutton. Please welcome her. We came up together because we've got three minutes between us. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you to Michelle, how exciting it is for ACME to be partnering with MIF together on this event. Um, we've had a long-standing relationship between MIF and ACME, um, so it's fantastic to see another excellent event. Um, I would like to introduce Jessica Buck, who is going to be leading the conversation tonight with Sandy Powell. Jessica is Associate Professor at the School of Fashion textile design and fashion at RMIT. Um, and she also has her own practice as uh, making costumes and also curating and writing about them. Um, it's very exciting to have Sandy here this evening. Um, Sandy's costumes, as you will know, are down in the Scorsese exhibition. It's fantastic to have additional costumes that we've loaned from Sandy. Um, I think there are five more that are in this iteration of the exhibition. Um, as it's come to Melbourne. So without further ado, thank you, everybody. Um, and I'd like to welcome Jessica and Sandy to the stage. So firstly, thank you all for coming this evening. Um, and as we were saying just now, what an amazingly dressed audience are here. Would we expect anything less for Sandy Powell? Um, I'm hugely honoured to welcome Sandy to the stage um, and to have this opportunity to have a conversation about her work. Um, I'm particularly interested in uncovering some of the um, processes and approaches to costume design today. So hopefully we'll get an insight into that. Um, Sandy is um, a hugely inspiring designer. Um, she has been designing for over three decades, I believe. Um, and she's worked with some of the most seminal directors of our times um, and some, on some of the most iconic films. And hopefully we'll be able to uncover some of that as well today. She's a huge inspiration to many creatives across different disciplines. Um, and I know from being an educator what an inspiration you are to both costume and fashion students, but also more widely, and also to many of us. So, um, yeah, very, very pleased to have you here today. So I'd like to begin, because we've only got half an hour, by starting with talking about how you actually got into um, into costume design. And I know that you famously noted Lindsay Kemp as being a huge inspiration. And I wondered, how did that come about? Was that the seminal moment? And how did you move from there into designing specifically for film? Okay, that's a big question. It is a big question. Um, it, well, 
actually seeing Lindsay Kemp at the age of about 15, 16 was the moment that I thought, this is a world I want to be involved in. But I guess it started earlier than that, my love of clothes. And fashion started much, much earlier when I was very small. Mm. Um, I mean, it really started with my mum making mine and my sister's clothes in the 60s. So I was brought up around fabric and sewing, <coughs> choosing patterns, choosing colours. And then I got her to teach me how to sew and started by making my doll's clothes. And then quite <clears throat> soon after that, making my own clothes. Uh, so really I was involved in clothes and wearing clothes and looking at other people with clothes and made my own fashion books and stuff like that. And then I didn't realise there was a job involved until that point where mm. as a teenager I saw Lindsay. And the reason I went to see Lindsay in the first place was because I was a massive David Bowie fan and read anything mm. and everything that was written about him, bought any magazine or paper that had him in. And then learned that Lindsay Kemp was one of the people that was um, instrumental in helping create the Ziggy Stardust character. Uh, and then I noticed that there he was performing in London, so I went straight and saw the shows that were in London for, I don't know, a few weeks over the summer um, and was blown away. So I thought, that's what I want to do. And then from school, went to art school with the view to possibly doing theatre design, which is, well, I went to art school and did a foundation course at first, which is where you do a bit of everything and decide where you want to specialise. You went to Central I went St Martin's. To, well, it was called Just St Martin's in those days when Central it was just the one, one yeah, school. Yeah, yeah. And that was the, the college that was really fashion-based. Yeah. And after a year, I realised that I wanted to do, I was more interested in doing um, performance-based clothes as opposed to fashion. So applied to Central to do theatre design. Um, I can carry on and tell you how. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then after that, you uh, then worked for a bit in music videos and you... Well, no, first of all, I worked with Lindsay. So Lindsay yeah. Kemp was the first person that I saw, was the person I saw on stage that made me want to do that as a job. Then during my second year at um, Central doing theatre design, I ran into him again and in, in, he was doing dance classes um, in London and never having done a dance class in my life I thought I'm gonna go and I I kind of I'm went I thought, okay yeah. I'm gonna do it and it wasn't really dance it was sort of it was free form self-expression mime I mean you know you had to pretend to be a cherry blossom for goodness sake. I mean it was sort interpretive of dance. You had, yeah, <laughs> interpreted dance yeah I had fallen in love with the person next to me I had to be a cherry blossom I kind of did it and at the end of the class <laughs> went up and told him what an inspiration he'd been to me and I loved his work and could I possibly show him my my, what I'd done, my college work, I guess. And amazingly, he said yes and took me out to tea. And we sort of became friends that summer. And it was, it was in the summer holidays. And basically, I, I, didn't go back to school, I didn't go back to school. What an amazing opportunity. And he promised me, uh, he promised me work. And then, it, sure enough, a few months later, I did do my first job with him. And you didn't work as um, an assistant designer. You went straight into designing then, pretty much. I did. My first job was in the theatre with him. Um, not in London. I was whisked off to Milan, where he was putting on a show called Nijinsky about the dancer Nijinsky and Diaghilev. Yeah. And it was um, actually in the studio theatre at La Scala, which was quite a place to start. <laughs> and I was just thrown in. And he said, well, can you make clothes? I said, yes, I can make clothes. And, you know, so it, it was designing the costumes and making them for this show. I mean, Lindsay, I have to say, is a designer and an artist, so he had a big, huge input. I mean, he told me what he wanted. Yeah. Uh, but that was how I started, really, thrown in the deep end. Fantastic. And then you, from there, started working um, in film, and you worked with Derek Jarman. 
that must have been also yeah. an incredible experience. I did two or three years in the theatre with Lindsay and with some small theatre companies in London. And then it came to the point where I thought I would, I would, I was more interested at the time I was doing sets as well as costumes in London. Um, and then I realised I was more interested in the costume side of things. And then I'd seen some films. I'd seen some Derek Jarman films. I'd seen The Tempest and Jubilee. I thought, I know. I want to work with Derek Jarman now. And <laughs> kind of rather cheekily got his phone number from somebody, called him up and said, come to see this show that I've designed. And he did. And did the same thing as Lindsay. He really amazingly invited me around to tea, had tea with him. And he said, OK, you want to do a film? You've got to start at the... The best place to start is um, the world of pop videos. We're, this, we're talking early 80s here, so they're just sort of started. Mm. And I did about a year of pop videos under his guidance. I mean, he directed a few of them. And then at the end of that year, uh, we did Caravaggio, which was my first film. So in the 80s, were you quite involved in the sort of subcultural scene at that time? Sort of um, new romantics and... I, it, that sort of started when I was in my college, in, in my college years, um, which was very, very early 80s. We were all dressing up to go to school. I mean, we were all sort of traipsing around in Victorian dresses. And, and how that actually happened, and my theory is how this whole new romantic thing started in London particularly, was it must have been about 1980 that a big um, costume rental company called Charles Fox put everything up for sale. Do you remember yes, this? Yes, I do. Yeah. And they had original clothing, and it was, it was like a jumble sale of old clothes, and everybody went and... We were walking around in jet, the best Victorian jet in <laughs> cloaks and, and yeah. capes and, yes. and sort of like... So we did all of that. And then I did go to the nightclubs a bit, but then because that coincided with me leaving college and going straight into work, I kind of didn't do the nightclub scene so much then. I was, like, really working. And so from there, you were pretty much working solidly. Yeah. yeah. Um, you've talked before about the differences between costume and fashion, which are very clearly different practices, but they are connected. Um, you've said that you believe costume is more interesting than fashion. Can you talk a little well, bit? Well, for me. I mean, yeah, I love you, fashion. Obviously, yes. I love fashion, and I always, I always look at fashion as in, for inspiration, um, Whatever, whatever job I'm doing, whatever period it is, I will always look at contemporary fashion of course. anyway, because there's always something you can get from it. I mean, fashion designers look at, at period costume and, and also films from inspiration. We all sort of take from each other, really. So I find it incredibly inspiring and get lots of ideas from contemporary fashion, but I don't, I'm not interested in being a fashion designer because I'm more interested in um, doing clothes for characters and telling a story and the whole collaborative process of film as opposed to designing clothes for a faceless person or just a figure. Mm. So, yeah, it's a deeper interest in people and yeah. uncovering the character. Um, I'll come back to some of the collaborations and your work with um, actors later and how you uncover character. But um, I thought I'd begin with thinking about how do you actually select or do you go about a process where you select which films you want to work on and which directors you want to work with? How, how do you make those decisions? I suppose I'm in a fortunate position to get offered things. So now, at this point in my career, but I think I've always made choices based on... Um, well, number one, it's the director. I mean, with, quite often you know who the director is, first of all. And, but back in, in, in the past, it would be a director that I didn't know or a new director. So the script has to be interesting. Um, and are there particular scripts? 
scripts or directors' um, styles that you're drawn to? Well, of course, if there's a director that you know that whose work you like, then you're going to want to work with them. Yeah. Um, um, but if it's a script that is a really great script or a well-written script, and if it's got interesting things for me to do, then that's what I like. I wouldn't do... I'm really not interested in doing um, a fabulous costume in a bad script or in something that's obviously going to be a bad film. I'd much rather do something that's much more a, a, an ordinary costume in an amazing film. Yes. I, I mean, mean I, I've always... I mean, my rule of thumb is I will only work on films I would pay money to see. Yes. So, and and you know, also and so luckily I've been able to afford to, to make those choices. And, and if there's nothing that I want to do, I'd rather not work. And I've done that. I've, I've had several months and even years of not working just because it's not... I, I don't want to give up my life to do something that I don't think is mm. going to be any good at the end of the day. And you were talking earlier on saying how very often, sometimes, you would actually rather to work on the low-budget films that have sort of real integrity or real interest for you. And that, that kind of balance between working on the sort of high-budget and low-budget mm -hmm. films, would you like to just elaborate on that um, a little? Well, more often than not, the films that are most interesting and take the most risks are the ones that don't have much money. I mean, because yeah. nobody, nobody wants to give tons of money to somebody a director or a writer who is taking huge risks and trying to do something different. Of course, they're always the most interesting things to work on because they really push the boundaries and they, they, you know, you get pushed yourself to come up with um, solutions and ways of doing things. And usually it's budgetary. I mean, how do we achieve these things on such low money in so, in, in so little time? But if it's a great story and something that's interesting, I would, I would do that. I would do whatever I can and even work for free or very little, um, in order to do something that I think is trying to be different, and it's always worth doing that. Having said that, of course, you have it's to earn money as well, and you have to do the bigger budget films. And there are a lot of... I mean, again, I've been fortunate enough to work with, with people like Martin Scorsese, who, who basically does big-budget art house movies. Mm. You know, I mean, yes. he is one of the few people that gets funded to make films that, that take risks and are being different. So I try to keep a balance. The big ones pay for the small ones. So moving to Scorsese then, um, are there, you, you obviously within that decision of which directors you work for, there are, I assume, some that allow you more creative freedom. And you've talked about how Scorsese actually really engages with the costumes. Um, in, is, that, is that quite unique? And how, how does that work? Like how, how does that relationship work? Um, well, all directors are different. Um, and some directors are more visual than others, which is, it's, it sounds strange to talk about directors that aren't visual. I mean, they are all visual, but some of them are much better at communicating their vision. Um, so there, there are some directors that will just leave you to get on with your job, your thing, and, and have a bit of an opinion about it, or they might feel like they have to have an opinion about it. Other directors start with um, giving you a lot of information, like Martin Scorsese and Todd Haynes are very similar in that at the beginning of a job, they've already done tons and tons of research and reference, and they have masses of visual reference, which they give you to begin with. I mean, Todd even, and Marty to an extent, gives you music that they've been listening to. So you start with this whole load of information. You, you, you kind of know what's been going on in their head. It might not be sp specifically to do with costume, but it's the kind of world that they've been living in, thinking about their film. So... I really like working with the directors who are visual and also directors who have been artists in their time. Like Derek Jarman was a designer, so yeah. he, again, was another, design, another director that could impart information really clearly and succinctly. But so, Marty actually loves clothes. He is a director who 
likes clothes. I mean, you can tell him he likes wearing them himself. So he, he's, he's very specific. He turns up for work every day, like completely, perfectly turned out. Um, so he, he understands what you're doing. He remembers every single thing you say to him. You can't get away with telling, saying, you know, I'm going to do this and then do something else. Yeah. And then say, oh, but I told you that. He said, no, you didn't. You told me this. Or... Or he'll, he'll remember the difference between an 1830s sleeve and an 1840s sleeve. And he's very, very involved, so he oversees very the involved. process. Well, he doesn't oversee yeah. it, but he just remembers everything you've said. So when yeah. you show him, when the actor comes on wearing the thing, he'll remember, he'll remember what you've said about it several months ago. Yes, yeah, so there's no, no space to hide. No, you can't <laughs> get away with anything. Um, yeah, so um, are, there, are there other directors that work in a very different way where maybe you, it's, it's more your role that you've been coming up with the contributing towards the aesthetic of the film overall? Yeah, there are times when a director hasn't. I mean, there have been a couple of times where I've even suggested what period it's set. I mean, Wings of the Dove, for instance, was originally set around 19... 08 or something like that at the beginning at the turn of the century and I remember Ian Sophie the director talking about it and it, it this was in the when was it mid 90s and there'd been a big spate of Merchant Ivory films with Helena Bonham Carter and Helena Bonham Carter was the lead in this and I suggested we move the period because it would just look like another Merchant Ivory film with Helena in a corset yeah so we moved it to 1913 which was a more interesting period so in that sense, it was a director coming to me and sort of saying, what do you think? And the same with when I started Cinderella, which was a different director to Ken Brown who ended up doing it. But again, it was like, what, where should we set it? What period should we set it? And I did a bunch of research and looked at different periods. And between myself and the original director, decided that somewhere in the 19th century was the best place for that. Fantastic. So it's really... Um heartwarming to hear of the, the sort of active role of costume and the costume designer yeah. in the process. That's if you're lucky enough to have a director that allows you to do that. I mean, obviously, a lot of directors will want to be in complete control and And sometimes there is this kind of you. myth that costume is sort of applied to somebody else's vision and the mm. hierarchies and things like that. But it sounds like you've had a very different sort of experience and being able to really instigate and Maybe I'm just really opinionated and I just can't. And, and maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> Um, okay, so I'd like to talk more about your actual process now or the processes which you use. Do you have a kind of typical design process um, when you approach a film or is it different for every film? I think it's actually the same process, whatever it is. It starts with, um, always it starts with reading the script. Um, then, you know, as soon after that, talking to the director about what their vision is or on if, getting any information from them, any visuals. But then research, then basically it's the first thing you do is you start research and if it's a period, which it usually is in my case, it, you'll, you research the period. Um, in the same way as you research anything, I suppose, like look, looking at visuals, looking at paintings, photographs, if it's a period, you know, post 1840. And do you have favourite places you go? I mean, do you, are you often drawn to particular galleries or I always start sources? in my own my own office which is full of books I mean I have a big collection of books which I'm sure most designers do have and I just go through all the books most of which I know intimately and and I even pick out books that aren't particularly relevant to that period you sort of get to know your books and you know that just by flicking through books you see images and then I do fashion magazines I do books fashion magazines and then I guess depending on what the film is go to galleries I mean it's always nice to see a painting for real like when I was doing 
the other Berlin girl, for instance, I mean, it's really great to go and look at the Holbein paintings. It, it's different from looking at the, the book, you know, it's, or, yeah. or on the internet. I mean, a book is better than looking at an image on a screen. And the actual painting is better than a book. So where possible, yeah, do that. And do you work with the fabric at the beginning of the process? For me, the fabric is one of the first things I do. Having, having got the visuals, having sort of made books and folders of um, images, and then I, I divide those images up into characters. Okay. And then going backwards and forwards with the director saying, okay, this is, this is, va this is a, sort of a real sort of broad selection of images I like. Then I narrow it down to these images make me think of this character. And then really, before I even think about what someone's going to wear, I actually do fabric shopping myself. I actually go and look at fabrics or I have a buyer who brings me samples of fabrics and I really always start with the cloth. And that in itself is maybe not as straightforward as it might seem because no. you can't always find the right fabric. Well, that's why I look at the fabric first. Without, 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 I don't design something and think, right, it has to be in, this, in, in silk in this particular shade and then go and find it. That's impossible. Yeah. I'll actually start with a fabric and then the fabric will give me an idea of what to make with it. And if I find a fabric I fall in love with, then I'll make a costume around that. I've even made a costume around a piece of trim about that big. Amazing. You know, you sort of find the bit of trim first. So at the very beginning, I do tend to shop. I do just tend to go and immerse myself in, in the yeah, fabrics, trimming, vintage clothing, anything. To, and, and actually feel it Absolutely. and look at it. And it's about the, the, the feeling of it and the look of it. And then I'll start getting the ideas. And colour and texture is so central to what you do. Yeah. Um, but also, do, do you ever use um, furnishing fabrics? And things yes, like use all Where sorts of you... fabrics, yeah. yeah. I mean, on the whole, I mean, the fabrics... I mean, in London particularly, the fabric shops have really disappeared. I Even mean, Shepherd's Bush is yeah, reducing. Yeah. Everything's disappeared. So it's actually it's quite difficult to go and, and find as much now as you could 20 years ago. Um, a lot of the fabrics used, uh, when, it's, when you say furnishing, it sounds, it sounds really like... Yes, yeah, not like... Heavy upholstered fabrics. No, I mean, there's beautiful silks. proportion yeah. and things like that. That's most, most, most of the interesting fabrics are made for, uh, for that now, for curtains and covering. Yeah. It sounds horrible, actually. We don't make clothes out of curtain fabric, but that, yes, we do look at those. But to, to find a fabric that is appropriate to a period... Um, it's difficult when you're It is. So, so then what you do more often period. than not is you have to create the fabric yourself. You have to make yes. the fabric yourself. So you start with a base cloth and dye it and print it. And there's, I mean, printing now is so amazing. You can do incredible things with digital printing and hand printing and painting. And so more often than not, we've created the fabric. I rarely actually use a fabric that is exactly as it is from the shop. I yeah. always do something to it, usually. Yeah, because breaking down is also very key in a lot of your work that actually the, the fabrics have been treated and made to represent the backstories of the character or the usually that experience. happens once it's been turned into the costume you oh, sort right, of work okay. on it afterwards yeah. yeah i mean i might you know if, if there's a fabric that you want to change the color of and you might dye the fabric and you might dye it unevenly to give it some interest but the breaking down and, and making the costume look like it's been worn yeah so you do i mean once the costume's made it's put on a on a stand and then very skilled people literally paint into it and spray into it and work into it yeah. and, and create things that to the eye really you can't detect it but if it's not there I notice yes. and I think that's the difference between a costume looking sort of real like it's been worn and, and one that looks like a costume that's just come straight Absolutely. from the costume shop 
And are you very engaged in that process? Because you obviously work with teams of people, but are you quite engaged in that process? Oh, very much. That particular process, the, the, the dyeing and the printing yeah. and, the, and the breaking down. Yeah, I'm in there with the, you know, I'm not doing it, but I'm, I'm very much involved in that and I, I love it. I think it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the finishing touch. It's the bit that has to be done and I won't work without my, my fabric painter. Absolutely. I think, I think it's really evident in your, in your works as well. Um, you also, I know, don't draw um, or sketch at the beginning of the process and you tend to sketch afterwards. And is that because you work much more intuitively with materials and in, in sort of um, twirling yeah, I th and 3D? I, it's a, I think for me it's a much more organic process. I don't, if I sat down and drew a costume that was in my head and then expected someone to find the fabric that looked like the, the drawing. And then if it was just made exactly like that, uh, I think it would end up being really boring because what happens is it, it, it... It's difficult to explain. I mean, I kind of work in 3D. I work with my cutter in 3D on a mannequin making a shape. I know what the shape I, is that I want to achieve. And yes, I do scribbles. I do scribbles to work out a proportion, but it's on a post-it note. It's nothing that I would show a director or a, a studio and say, this is what Cinderella's going to look like or this is what whoever's going to look like because it, it never is. You do a drawing and nine times out of ten, the, the, the end product does not look like that because it changes when you, you get the costume first on an actor in a fitting. You realise that proportions are wrong, things are different, the colour could change a bit and that's the actual designing happens in the, in the fitting room, yes. not on a bit of paper at a desk. It's when, it's when you, see, you see what works on that actor. And there's always a moment in the fitting room, whether it's if you're doing something that's 20th century and you're trying clothes on, if you're trying on like 1930s dresses or 1950s dresses on somebody and you're doing one after the other, the one that works is the moment. And then some, when you're making something from scratch and you're, you're ripping an artist's sleeve out so that doesn't work and you try another shape, there is a moment when the character appears. I mean, this is a corny thing and other designers use this same analogy is that when the character appears in the fitting room then that's your design that's the that's the eureka moment as they say that's the design process is in the fitting room not at a desk absolutely and i do drawings at the end when i know what the costume looks like <laughs> could, could you talk about one uh, and then everyone thinks oh costumes look just like the drawings <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing that. <laughs> could you talk a bit about um and a particular example of that where you've really had that eureka moment because it's quite hard to mm. imagine for people uh, is there a particular costume um i can't remember i can't i mean it happens every time yeah no i mean it happens on every job so really every you know that's happened every time Okay. So I can't, so there's not there's a particular, not a particular thing. Yeah, and if it didn't, it would be wrong. So you I kind of you, think you rely on. I mean, the costumes that. that I, I mean, I can't even. But there are certain. Obviously, I look at every film, and there'll be one or two things that I don't like or don't work, and that's where that hasn't happened. Or I don't know. Not everyone is great. Sometimes it, some slip away. And do the actors actually change your design process inevitably in that in that relationship? That actually, what you'd thought you were. Only if, only if I've, had, if I've had an idea for a costume based on a character in a script without knowing who the actor is, and maybe maybe in the script maybe the script has described somebody physically, and then they end up not being cast like that, and the, and the casting is different, then everything goes out of the window, and you have to start again because you actually have to design for the the body in front of you, as well as the character. You've then got to make the body work with that character, so you do have to work with the actor. Yes. So in, in that sense, that's and how an actor can make something change if you've, if you've gone down another road or the actor's changed. 
And how do you work between kind of period, being truthful to a period or um, period correctness and contemporising it? Um, because often your work is talked about in that sense that you, you are very sensitive to, to that transition. Um, yeah, could you talk maybe a little bit about that, maybe mm. from like Shakespeare in Love, maybe? And okay. Well, it, it depends on the project. I mean, um, about a historical project. I mean, there are some projects where Shakespeare in Love was a comedy. So, I mean, even though that I, we did all the research properly and looked at all the Elizabethan things, and basically everything is, is, is sort of, as far as we can tell, cut properly. Yeah. But then you take liberties with the fabrics and how things are treated. And I remember um, a, a haberdashery, vintage haberdashery dealer I, I went to to buy some lace for the, one of the Gwyneth's lace collars was outraged because I was buying a piece of deco lace to make an Elizabethan costume. And I said, well, okay, where's your Elizabethan lace then? You know, it's not, I'm not going to find Elizabethan lace. And it doesn't matter, we're telling a story. It's, it's not real, it's not a documentary. Yes. On the other hand, there are other films where it's set in a, a, the biographical films, like I know, Young Victoria, for instance. Again, I couldn't really... Um, I tried where possible to be accurate. I mean, all the, the, the cutting is accurate, the shapes are accurate, but you can't get the same fabrics. The, the stitch length is different because the machines aren't the same, so you have to go with it and just do what is best for telling the story. I mean, the clothes aren't made to go in a museum, and this is what a Victorian um, no. you know, item of clothing is like. And I got to see Victoria's actual clothes at Kensington Palace, and there's no way in the world you could recreate them really, because the, everything is different. Yes. So you do the best you can to tell a story. I think it was Deborah Landis who talked about, uh, she was saying that the best costume is costume that is invisible. And I just mm. wondered what you thought about that statement. That applies particularly, I think, to contemporary films. And, yeah. and I, you know, just, I'm full of admiration for, for costume designers who do contemporary films. I don't do that many because I'm interested in period, and I'm interested in making things from scratch. And I've done contemporary films, and it's really hard. It's really hard to make it look real. Mm. Even though you'd think it would be easy, you just go shopping. But um, to actually make characters believable in contemporary clothing is really difficult. And, and Deborah's right, the ones that are most successful are the ones that you just don't notice, mm. which means that they're in real. That context. With period stuff, it's harder. Not harder, it's different. Um, but what you have to try to do is not make the costume distracting, not make the costume so sort of fantastical and big that it overshadows the performance or the character or the story. Yes. Do you design uh, or do you oversee the design of all of the costumes or do you give aspects of that work out to your assistants? So in, so in, a, in a large-scale film like Gangs of New York or something mm -hmm. like that... Um, how do you, how well, you the principles, I oversee every single one of the principles. When it comes to making costumes for extras, when Gangs of New York there were hundreds and yeah. Cinderella there were lots. I mean, I do, a, uh, I do the design, but then I have to hand over to someone to oversee it, to, to see it through, because there just aren't enough hours in the day for right. you to do it. But I, see, yes. but I see when it comes back, I see it at a certain stage, and then I can make changes and it goes away and someone else does it. So you sort of art direct. Yeah. I mean, I think if, if something is really huge, you could give an area to somebody else to... Well, not even design, really. No, you sort of basically design it, but you cannot possibly oversee every single thing, no. You have 
you have assistants that, that you trust, that you know, that you work with all the time, mm -hmm. that then oversee different things. And that's part of the job. A huge part of the job is being able to delegate. You do have to let other people do things. Yes, and trust them. But I do process. see every single one. Yes. It's not, I, I do see every single one before it ends up on the screen. And another thing I would be really interested to hear a bit more is about, is about your use of colour. So um, I'm thinking, uh, particularly in, well, in all of your films, actually colour is, is really central. Um, but in something like The Aviator, um, the way you use colour to forge connections between characters, between character and location, for example... How, how do you think about colour in that sort of sense as kind oh, of symbolism? Know. Maybe I you've suppose. noticed things I haven't noticed. In yeah. <laughs> I mean, sometimes people see things that I don't see and I'd wonder whether I, you know, I don't they think I'm not that clever or maybe I think that I am and I just do it without noticing. I don't know. It, it um, appears that sometimes colour forges a connection between characters. Maybe it does. And you know, I, I, I use colour completely instinctively. I actually mm. don't think about things too much. I don't... Um, analyze stuff too much actually I don't use color symbolically particularly right. I use it I just have a feeling about it and, and often color is the first thing I think about with a character and with a well, I can think about it in terms of a character but then obviously that will change when I meet an actor and I just get ideas of what colors should be and I do I don't think of um, costumes and colors in isolation I always always think of the other people in the room Mm. and what is in the set or where the set is and what the colours are there. I, do, I think of it as a whole always. But I just do... I, I work from, from, from not my gut, really. So I, I can't answer that question. I don't know. I don't and work it is, out. Is an important and I'd, and usually what I have is all the colours that I want to work with and all the colours, I just have them all sort of laid out on a table and put them into groups, like this scene, this scene here is this group of colours, this scene here is this group of colours. And it's whatever works for the feeling of the seen and what I like and I, I think yeah so maybe it is something that you notice as a as a viewer or an audience yeah. um, no people put all kinds of meanings yeah. on, on the colors that I put together and really there isn't and any it always strikes me that there, <laughs> there always seems to be this sense of connectivity yeah. between the character and moments of their their dress and the spaces mm. within which they're in, inhabiting but interesting so to dig a bit deeper into collaborations then, um, how do you actually collaborate within the film production process? Um, so for example, maybe talking about um, particularly collaborative environments, like was Cinderella particularly collaborative? Well, they're all collaborative. I mean, and that's the whole purpose but of the film you... is you're collaborative. You're, you're, in an ideal world, you're in the same space as all the other people, as the, uh, the art department and everything else. So Cinderella, like Gangs of New York, were films that were based in one place in a studio so we were all working together from day one of pre-production which is really helpful and that's not always the case it's not always the no. case sometimes you're in another country yeah i mean if the film was being shot in another country from where i'm working then you can only communicate through you know just well now with internet before internet it was even harder but um you know through photos and stuff like that but it's so much nicer to actually go into the the physical space of the art department and look at the drawings and look at what they're doing and go to the set decorating department and see what fabrics are being used so where possible we work very closely together and has has collaboration changed with like the introduction of new like cgi and things like that or does it function very much as it did previously hmm 
I don't know. No, the collaborative process is still the same. You just collaborate with different people. More, more you collaborate people. with the visual effects people, the, yeah. the special effects and the visual effects people. You sort of work with them. On Cinderella, that was a case of working with those people quite far in advance. I mean, like when, for instance, um, the footman, the lizard footman, when they, they started with me, I actually designed the costumes and then worked with them on how to turn the costumes into the lizard. So it was sort of, it was a that was a complete collaborative process that was quite interesting. So they based their drawings on the costumes that I'd done and then turned them into the lizards and the okay. goose footman or whatever it was, or the carriage driver. Or so that actually then changes your design process as well? Kind of, yeah. kind of, but the costume did come first actually. Yes. In um, that particular situation. And the, um, the butterflies were also applied afterwards weren't they no the butterfly the but okay the butterflies came from when i was designing the dress i wanted the dress to be really really simple but it needed some kind of decoration and i didn't want to have flowers and it's just an idea i had way actually quite early on with like what would be the decoration on a dress where would it come from and i thought oh cinderella's at one with nature and friends with the animals and all the rest of it and i sort of, I, I so i imagined that the butterflies could come and land on and, and make decoration so i made the butterflies on the dress and then i actually said that that was my idea was that they'd come and done that so then they actually used that in the animation okay so then there's how that happened that yes it wasn't written in the script it's interesting because you probably, well, I wouldn't have associated you with um, Disney sort of films no, until neither. you did that. Um, how, how was that experience? I mean, moving from sort of period dramas and then working with Disney must have been a very, a very big shift. It was. And the reason I was attracted to it, were two re well, yeah, the reason was I just got to the end of Wolf of Wall Street, which couldn't be more testosterone. Yeah, to <laughs> totally opposite. <laughs> and was offered Cinderella. I thought, oh, God, yeah, why not? You know, <laughs> girls' film for girls, you know, sort of. Um. <laughs> and it's a fantastic story, actually, and, and why not do Cinderella? Uh, and I'm glad I did. And, and, you know, I mean, my fears were, oh, God, Disney, big studio, they're going to have complete control, they're going to tell me what to do, I'm not going to be allowed to do what I want to do. And I kind of said to myself, if I get to the point where they're telling me what to do and, I, and, and vetoing everything, then I'll just walk. <laughs> and you would have done. <laughs> and I would have done, but they didn't, yeah. and they were brilliant, and, you know, they just let me do what I wanted. That's amazing. So you would expect yeah. there to be a lot of kind of... Yeah. Sort of I mean, I could, you know, I knew that I, I knew what, what I was doing had to translate. I mean, I was always thinking that whatever I do with the dress and the shoe that I got to design is going to have to translate to, you know, dolls' clothes and kiddie clothes and stuff like that. So I had that in the back of my mind. I knew that I had to do that. Yes, very, very different context. Mm. Would you work on Disney films or fairy tale films again? Sure. Yeah, I would. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, more, no, we'll say no more on that then. Um, the other sort of collaborative elements, I suppose, that I'm, I was interested in unpacking with you is uh, how close do you work with, with, obviously, lighting, which has a huge impact on costume, and at what stages do you work with a, with the lighting designer? Mm, lighting is really important, and, and it depends on the film whether you get to work closely with them or not, and it's, it's changed a lot since digital and HD, everything's become really different because I started out when everything was film and I used to know how colours would read on film. You used to know what shade of red to use. If you wanted something to look scarlet, then you would have to use like a, 
a brick red, a, a yeah. browner red, to make it look scarlet, because if you actually use scarlet, it would go all zingy. Um, yeah, I used to know how colours would, would turn out on film. Now, since di and then digital happened and everything changes, because it all, it's all tweaked as you, they go along. Yeah. Um, and then someone else decides what shade something should be. And I've had quite a few run-ins with DPs, actually, over what colour something is. Like, I'd, I'd use a colour... I mean, for instance, in The Wolf of Wall Street, Margot Robbie first turns up in a dress that I would say was a turquoise blue. It was a greeny blue uh, Hervé Leger dress. And then when I saw The Rushes, or The Dailies, it was electric blue, a much stronger blue, blue, electric blue, and it was horrible. And I said, that's not the right colour of the dress. That's a horrible, that's, it's not right. And then the DP said, well, it's a nice blue. And I said, but that's not, not the, blue the blue I, I choose. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you choosing the blue? And then he said, well, I, he had to adjust the colour for the skin tone. And I said, oh, God, yeah. I don't care. I don't like that. What about the frock? <laughs> so, so then you then it then it's like lots of discussions later, and then it does all finally get tweaked. Um, but that's that happens more and more. And the same thing did happen in Cinderella. Interestingly, the green dress that Kate Blanchett, as a stepmother, wears to the ball, mm. was made of a Duchess satin green silk that was imported from Italy. And the dress is actually in two parts: there's a bodice and a skirt. And it looks lovely on her. When the film was put together, I looked at it, and strangely, the top half turned into a completely different colour to the bottom half. The bottom half was an olive green. The, the green that it was meant to be, like an acidic olive green. The top half went like emerald green. How did that happen? Yeah. And then again, it was sort of like, how on earth did that happen? The only way we thought that it could have happened was apparently the, the fabric came in two batches, and they must have been two different dye batches. And although to the eye you couldn't see the difference, there must have been a difference that got picked up digitally. Yes. So then they had to go through a long, boring process of making... Post-production. Yeah, in yeah. post-production, yeah. making the two match. And then one of the visual effects girls spent weeks on it and then phoned me up and said, I've done it, I've done it, it's the same colour. I went to have a look at it and she'd done it the wrong colour. <laughs> she'd, she'd done it all emerald green instead of all olive green. And it was like, oh my God. <laughs> How did you address that one? I'm really no, sorry to tell you, but yeah. <laughs> back to the drawing board. <laughs> but it's it's interesting how I mean it sort of it sort of makes you want to be in the editing room. You, yeah. you you need to be there the whole way to make sure. Otherwise, why you know why not I just make everything grey and somebody else decide what all the colours are? <laughs> you know, it must be very, it's hard, very difficult. So you have to you have to make friends with the with the yeah. cinematographer and and to not. Uh, sort of be a kind of control freak and in yeah. charge of everything, but still keeping an eye on yeah. everything is very, very difficult. It's difficult. What about um, uh, hair and makeup, which all is another aspect that can make or break yeah. costume design? Hair and makeup's crucial. Really I mean, where possible, I try to be in control of who the hair and makeup people are. I mean, it used to be that the costume designer was in complete control of hair and makeup and could even design the hair and makeup back in the old days. Yeah. Um, I don't, I not, don't not think I'd have so time to do that, but you know, I, would, I would certainly love to be able to pick the hair and makeup people on every job I do because obviously there, there are some that are better than others and some I'm close friends with and have worked for years. And when you work closely with the hair and makeup people, it's fantastic. You just get a, a you know, it all works. And it can go horribly wrong if... Um, you're working separately and quite often there are there you know there are plenty of hair and makeup people who want to do their own thing who have their own ideas and and just do 
their own thing separately, and that's and then you get a case of like the head not matching the body, which is really weird. It, it can actually become part of costumes. Yeah, well, it can it can yeah. completely ruin the look if the head doesn't match the body. It, it completely ruins it. So in an ideal world, you you work together from start to finish yeah. and are in agreement. And I think kind of yeah, what's coming out is is designing for performance is a totally collaborative process. Yes, that's, and 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 that's what we do. And the most successful things come from where everything gels where everybody where everyone's done the best possible work and you all work well together i mean so often you work on films where there's like a couple of wrong people and yeah. it just throws the whole thing and that's a, that they are very unique moments so yeah it, is that i suppose that's why you've often worked with the same directors again you try or, to work with the same team that works yeah. well and uh, yeah. um, with actors as well, yeah. like, like Kate Blanchett working with her several times. Well, I don't get any choice over that, but yes, yeah. it's nice when you do work with the same people who you, who you like. You start yes. to get to know how people work and yeah. how they tick. Um, and also the, the accessories. So do you, do you design the accessories or do you style the accessories or do you work with a team on that? Um, accessories. Accessories are what, like shoes? Shoes, I mean, where possible, if we're making shoes, then yes, I design the shoes and have them made. Um, jewellery, sometimes you get to design the jewellery. Uh, other, other times it's purchased, I mean, it's bought, it's looked at. I mean, it's, it's styling. I mean, that's where, yeah, accessories usually is, is things that already exist and you put it together. Um, and then I work with jewellery designers and hat makers, milliners, and shoemakers who I will give briefs to and reference to, and then they will come up with things. Um, yes, but yeah, it's madness. And then with uh, your costume, the people who realise the costumes, costume makers, um, how does that relationship work? How do you actually communicate your ideas? Mm. And I think you your that? cutter is probably the most important relationship that you have. Uh, yeah. And the cutter is, is is a very important person. And sadly, they're 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 few and far between cutters and tailors. We need more cutters and tailors, or people who want to be cutters and tailors. Everybody, for some reason, people don't want to learn how to do it. Everybody wants to be a designer. Um, it's true. And the cutter, honestly, is the, is, the, is, is the most creative person in the whole process, because they're the ones that interpret your idea. You might have, I might give a, a pile of research reference material, and it could be, uh, I mean, for instance, in Gangs of New York, I, some of my reference was Yoji Yamamoto, some of it was... 1840s, you know, Victorian. And I had an amazing cutter then who would actually look at that, look at that, look at a skirt I gave that I'd just bought and sort of messes around with fabric on a stand and comes up with shapes, which are, you know, they can actually make or break something. And, and you, a good cutter is the, is, the, is the most important relationship. And you build up a relationship with your cutters. It's quite difficult working with new cutters and you build up a relationship and then that you you get you develop a language like you do with anybody and it might you know do scribbles on a post it note give reference and then where possible working 3D i actually like to see the thing appear on a stand you know you, i mean i myself get sometimes stay after work and with a bolt of fabric and just pinning it to a stand to make the shape and then the cutter will come in and then make that cut it beautifully and make it work 
And, and I know um, earlier we were, we were talking about this kind of issue with, with um, the relationship with the cutter, but in terms of um, your own training, you, you know how to cut period costumes, so that... I know the basics, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I started off making clothes, and I did start out making costumes, so I do know the basics. Not, I don't do it anymore, and I couldn't do it nearly as well as the people that work for me, so but I do understand construction. I understand yeah. construction, understand how, how it works. And, I, and if something's going wrong... I know why it's going wrong. And I, th I think that's critical in, in that relationship between the, the person making the costume and yeah. the, the designer, yeah. that there is this kind of shared language. Um, so, yeah, you've, the, you work collaboratively in all of your, all of your works, um, but some of the pieces that you have developed have clearly taken hours and hours to realise. So, um, for example, Judy Dench's costume... Um, in uh, Qu as Queen Elizabeth in Shakespeare in Love, how many people worked on that? Oh how did goodness, how, no how was that, that was so long constructed? Ago. There were three of them. Um, I don't know the answer. To that. I'm really bad at statistics. Yeah. I do know that Cinderella was took 20 people 500 hours and like five miles of thread or something and 80 <laughs> meters of fabric in total. I mean, I know that I know that one because that was the most recent statistic I'd remember. I mean, yeah, I mean, and probably the, 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 the Queen Elizabeth dress probably nearly as long, maybe not as long, because it had decoration on it, so that takes a long time. But um, prob no, the Cinderella dress is probably one of the longest because of the layers and layers and layers. Even though it's very, very simple, it's made up of thousands of layers of very, very fine fabric. And you've, you've talked about that as being very much like a, a um, couture process. It is a couture process. Absolutely. I mean, you know, by the, you know if you knew how much they cost, I mean, it really is. It's, yeah, yes. it's made to measure yeah. with several fittings, yeah. And hours and hours of Hours and hours and hours of handwork, yeah. yeah. Are there any um, directors that you would like to work with that you haven't had the oh. opportunity to work with? Not, not this is a pitch, but... <laughs> Probably, but I don't I mean quite often I mean the directors whose work I like already have really good costume designers. Not so and I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be taking their jobs. So. <laughs> <laughs> is it quite a close knit community in yes, terms it of it is. We're yeah. we're we're actually all really supportive of each other. And it's not I mean you'd imagine it would be a sort of bitchy world and it's not. I mean people always Imagine that me and Colleen Atwood are, are arch enemies and we're not, we're really good friends and we <laughs> talk to each other, you know, we go out and we hang out and we, you know, are there trade times, secrets. Do you give each other work sometimes where you think maybe that... Yes, actually, actually the, the job I'm doing next, I'm working with the director that Colleen normally works with, it's not Tim Burton, but um, because she can't do it because she is working with Tim Burton, so yes. I am doing. And I was offered this job, and the first thing I did was call Colleen and say, why aren't you doing it? Because I felt bad. But <laughs> she she said, gave me her blessing. Well, it's very nice to hear that it's such a collegiate it and is, supportive yeah. environment as yeah. opposed to being yeah, kind of competitive in that sense. Well, I guess it, it's, it's competitive, competitive but in a nice way. Do you yeah. know what I mean? But nice, we are all nice to each other. Nicely competitive yes. is good. Yeah. Um, so I'm being, I'm being given a sign that we might be nearing towards an end. So I suppose my last question is, what are you working on next? So what can we look forward to? I just are you finished. Able to talk about that? No, I can. Yeah. I can tell you what I've just finished. I just finished um, a film, another film with Todd Haynes in New York called Wonderstruck, which is um, 
based on a book by Brian Selznick, who wrote Hugo Cabret, that the Scorsese film Hugo was based on. So it's his next book. So it's, it's a film where the protagonist's a 12-year-old. So it's Todd Haynes doing a film for kids and older, Interesting. which will be set in 1927 and 1977 New York, and that should be out in about a year. And when I go back to London in September, I'm starting work on another Disney film. I'm doing Mary Poppins. Aha. Which is not a remake. It's another story. It's a, it's a sequel. It's Mary Poppins and Emily Blunt is being Julie Andrews. Fantastic. Well, there's something, something to look forward to. So I think um, I will wind up our part of the conversation now and open up because I know Sandy is very keen to get questions from the floor. Um, can I thank you, Sandy? That was fantastic. Really interesting to get a sense of how you work, who you work with and how. Um, and now we will pass it over to the audience. Do we have any questions? I've watched Cinderella so many times. Could you please tell me what was the blue fabric? Yeah, the, what, of the ball gown? Yes. There were many layers. Okay, the top layer was silk crepeline. Right. Then underneath that are two or th no, three layers of this really, really fine fabric called umissima, which is actually polyester, yeah. but hugely expensive. Yeah. And it's, it's so fine that if you, if you throw it up in the air, it kind of floats, floats. like smoke. And yeah. these, that, so when you see the movement, the colors, in the dress, you know, the top layer is that sort of lavendery colour. Underneath, there's a, a greeny colour and a lilac and a blue, and they're all moving. Then underneath that is a really cheap synthetic. Oh, it's a really, really cheap synthetic that's sort of iridescent, that's light, that bounces, that the light bounces off. Then underneath that, there are layers and layers and layers of, a, of the silk again in ruffles to give the body. Well, it was the most magnificent gown, and thank you so much for the creation. <laughs> um, first of all, I'd just like to say you're the person who got me interested in costume, um, so thank you for being my Lindsay. <laughs> oh, great. Um, secondly, with all the beading and embellishment and stuff, you've obviously got some really detailed pieces. Do you outsource that or do you do it in studio? It depends what it is. A lot of, like in Cinderella, for instance, since that's the last one I can remember, um, there's a lot of um, embroidery, all the um, bullion embroidery work and all the menswear stuff is sent to Pakistan or India. So we work with people like the design. I mean, I have a design. I have sort of a piece of, uh, you know, yeah, basic drawn out design. Then you, there's a middle person who you hand it to and then they draw it up or do it properly, neatly. And we send the pattern pieces of the, of the it's usually it's the military stuff. We send the pattern pieces out and then a few weeks later, it comes back all done and gorgeous. Um, but then there are other certain embroidery, and then there's some embroidery that's machine embroidered that we, that we send to embroiderers. Um, yeah, it depends on what it is, but, but specifically that really um, intricate gold bullion embroidery is usually always sent to India. Um, I wanted to ask specifically about Orlando. How was it um, taking that character who not only transitioned from, well, no pun intended, um, <laughs> different periods, but also transition genders. Sorry, what was the question? I mean, what what was the? How was it like taking? How was it? Oh, yeah, God. like how where was, was your, you know you got to work with different periods? I know. The character well, progressed okay. That. First of all, we're talking about an awful long time ago, so it's quite hard to remember. And I suppose that was one of my early films, if you like. Um, and although it looks like it's an epic film, it's quite small. So I did only have Tilda, really, to concentrate on. Um, I guess that was a designer's dream, really, wasn't it? It was sort of covering all of those different periods 
and lucky enough to have someone like Tilda Swinton to dress. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't really go wrong. I mean, you know, it's sort of... Um, it was a great challenge and brilliant fun. And I, you know, I don't remember it being hard. It was hard in that it was like never enough time, never enough money. But that was, you know, back in the days where I was pretty much starting out. And so staying up all night and sewing myself. That was one of the, that was one of the jobs where I was, you know, sewing and gluing and all the rest of it. Um, I don't know what to say. It was, it was fun. It was really fun. It was great. And I would, I would do it again in a shot, you know. I think that script is every kind of costume student's dream script it is, yeah. when they get yeah. it. Yeah, fantastic. I just wanted to ask, what was it like working on Black and White for the first time with Wonderstruck? What was it like working? With, with, on Black and White for the first time? Oh, in Black and White. Um, really interesting, actually. I'd never done Black and White before. Um, and I was interested in doing it, and I learned quite a lot because... As you know, as we've been talking, I mean, colour for me is really, really important. I love working colour, and it's always the first thing I think of, and I think of a costume in colour before I think of what the shape is. So I I was thinking, oh, right, I don't have to think about colour. And as I was working on the principal, the principal character is a 12-year-old girl, and so I knew what she was going to be wearing. She needed a dress and a jacket and a pair of shoes and a hat, and she wears the same thing throughout. Um... And I just automatically kept gravitating to p- putting colours and things that look nice together. So the first version I made as a, as a test was all colours that look nice together. Then looked at it through a camera, which now you can do quite easily, look through your iPhone and put it into black and white. And it looked terrible. It looked horrible because it was all, all the colours that looked nice together. Actually, I wasn't thinking of tone. And the tonally, it was all the same and it looked really bland. So then I had to really work hard at... Um, putting things together that worked tonally. So you had to, and, the, and the, the cinematographer said to me, I really need texture and differences and contrast, a high texture, high contrast. Mm-hmm. So I would put things together and then show Todd, and Todd actually would get really worried about high contrast and high texture. And then the camera was going, no, but I want high contrast. <laughs> and got there in the end, but still, because it was a little girl, a little 12-year-old girl who'd never acted before, I still wanted to make it pretty for her, and I did do colours that looked nice. For her, even though it was going to be in black and white. Um, But it worked tonally in the end. But it was really helpful in our crowd scenes. We had lots and lots of crowd scenes in the 1920s and not much money, so I only had the clothes I had. So it made it a lot easier doing fittings where you didn't have to think about colour. You just had to make things fit well and look nice through the camera. So it was interesting. It had its pluses and minuses, but it was interesting. Hi, I was just wondering about how much lead time you get from concept and then in pre-production and if you often work on overlapping films and how you, I don't know, keep focused on them. Right. Um, It totally depends on the size or the scale of the film. Um, So, for instance, the film I've just finished, Wonderstruck, um, I had about 10 weeks prep from the very, from actually first day at work reading the script to first day of shooting. You don't finish everything by the first day of shooting. You're still you know, producing things and making things throughout the shoot, but just 10 weeks. Um, Cinderella was six months. But then there was an awful lot more to do. I mean, there was, there was, it was a much huger film. And then the dress and the shoe themselves took a long, long time. Uh, so it, it varies depending on, on the film. And then in terms of overlapping films, it's difficult to do that. It's actually, I find that 
and they sometimes they overlap towards the end towards the end once everything once everything's designed and everything's made and everything's been seen and it's just a question of it being shot and hanging around on set I'd rather not be hanging around on set I'd rather be doing another job and starting to think about something else so I can usually start to think about something else once the last costume has been designed because at that point I get bored actually I need to be thinking Thank about you. something else it's interesting. So it's not a difficult process to let go and to move to the next thing. No. I mean, when I was working on Cinderella, I was working with Kate on Cinderella. We were talking about Carol because we knew that that was going to immediately follow Cinderella. So I actually started thinking about Carol at the same time as Cinderella. But then that was a kind of natural progression. It was working with Kate. I used some similar references. I was looking at 1950s reference for Kate in, in Cinderella. So I was carried that on a bit into Carol, even though they're worlds apart, it was sort of, you know, my brain was already going there. Um, I wondered if you um, used colour to manipulate kind of juxtaposition where, say, for example, um, someone's full of heartiness, but there's an undercurrent in their character or in that particular scene. Do you kind of try and visually show that with colour? I think I do, but without thinking about it too much, like I was saying before. I mean, all my baddies tend to be sort of like acidic, cool <laughs> colours. I tend to I use green a lot and kind of acidic yellows and greens. And when if I look back over my work, kind of anybody a bit mean is that colour. Um, <laughs> but then I also like that colour. I use that colour for nice things too. So I don't know. I've, I think I do, but without thinking about Subliminally. it. Subliminally. Subliminal. I think it really is subliminal as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think it is. Are you ever tempted back to theatre? Um, yes. And I do do bits of theatre now and then. I mean, over the years, all the, all the years I've been doing film, I've worked on, for dance for the same company. And it was um, a, a woman, a girl, I met on my first day at college in 1978. Wow. Who, we were both doing foundation, then she went on did textiles, then she went to dance school and became a choreographer. And she ran two very successful companies for over 30 years in London. And I, I did many, 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 many shows for them at the same time. as I managed to slot that in at the same time as doing film. Is that Lee Anderson? Yeah. Yeah, OK. And I've done a couple of operas. But opera, I mean, which I would love to do, but opera is very difficult to commit to when you work in film because you have to commit years in advance to being available for a few weeks. And it's very difficult. I couldn't turn down a film that was six months, eight months long in order to be around for six weeks on an opera, so I haven't done any, but I, I love the theatre, and I like, it's a whole different um, world and process, but there is nothing more exciting, I think, than live performance. Mm. So, I, yeah, I would definitely go back and do it. Okay, I think I'm being told I'm not allowed to ask any more, I'm not allowed to allow any more questions, so I think I have to wind up, but um, I'd like to thank Sandy Powell for her time and generosity with her responses and questions. Thank you. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.